Couldn't remember how long that runs. I'm delighted to introduce our guest speaker today, uh, Todd Allen, Dr. Todd Allen. Uh, he's become a friend of mine. He's a brother in Christ. He's a brother in Christ. I almost said not sound like I said brethren in Christ. <laughs> he's a brother in Christ, a wise, mature, thoughtful uh, man of God, follower of Jesus. Uh, Todd grew up in Western Pennsylvania, um, just outside of Pittsburgh, and is, in a, and is a Geneva College alum. Uh, married to Lynette. They have a 23-year-old son. Last, uh, for the past six years, he's been vice president of uh, diversity affairs and professor of communications at Messiah, now University. Um, when I was there, it was Messiah College, now University. Um, so that may mean that he, he may know your, your friend or your, your chi- uh, child of yours, but only probably if they've been, attended there in the last six years or so. Um, and when I looked it up, I realized that you spoke here almost exactly two years ago. It was the last Sunday in February, two years ago, that you came uh, here for the first time. And uh, I, th- I thought of him as a very logical person to help us in this sermon series again as well, where our focus, we've been calling it Sadek, this Hebrew word that uh, can be translated as either righteousness or as justice. And in this series, we've been talking about how righteousness does include moral purity. It includes, you know, avoiding sin. But righteousness, especially in the Old Testament, is almost always about setting things right, about uh, leveling the playing field, and that that is a crucial part of God's concept of justice. And so we've invited Todd to come and speak to us in this series. And um, he's going to, his theme for this morning is from Micah 6.8, walking humbly with your God. So looking forward to hearing from you, God. Thank God bless you. you. Yeah. Well, good morning. What a uh, blessing and honor it is to be back uh, with you in worship this morning. To your pastor, Pastor Carl, my brother, I thank you for this invitation uh, this morning. And I thank you for the opportunity to share in this sermon series centered around one of my favorite passages of Scripture. When I think about this relationship between righteousness and justice, I think about a word recently shared by my brother Raymond Chang when he said there's a desperate need for Christians to learn what it means to be gracious, loving, truthful, and committed to justice all at the same time. As people of God, we've come to realize that such a commitment doesn't have to compromise our faith, but rather it represents the living out of our faith. I don't know if you knew this or not, uh, but this past week across the nation, many recognized what's called the National Collegiate Day of Prayer, a day dedicated to prayer, revival, and awakening on college campuses all across this land. In that spirit, I had a dear friend and brother send me a message letting me know that he was praying for me extra special on that day as someone who works in a university setting. And as I thought about his words and I reflected on the message that I wanted to share with you briefly this morning, I thought they represented a fitting prayer uh, for us this morning. So let us pray. I come this morning praying for your leadership, steadfastness, your heart to listen, and courage to speak. I pray that as you pour out into others, that you find refreshment and are filled up as well. I pray that people find Christ 
through their relationship with you. I pray your commitment to equity and justice, that it bring a sense of dignity and belonging to all. Amen. Thinking about what I would share this morning, so many thoughts raced through my mind. Obviously, I'd need to speak on the guiding scripture for this series, Micah 6.8, and more specifically, what it means to walk humbly with God. But at the same time, and while under no obligation, it is the ending of Black History Month, so I'd be remiss if I didn't somehow make a mention of that history, of our shared history. And the more I thought, the more I prayed, I was directed yet again then to another passage of Scripture, which you heard for your hearing just a moment ago in Hebrews. When I think about these heroes and sheroes of the faith, uh, who live lives of an unwavering trust and confidence in God, and by their example, uh, like the Christians of old, we too are encouraged not to forsake faith in God. Walking humbly with God is not an activity reserved just for a select few. Rather, it's what God desires of all his children. To walk humbly with someone is to be in close proximity. Uh, It's to talk with one another. It's to listen to one another. It's to share your heart with another, to be in harmony. And when we walk humbly with God, we are in the most intimate of relationships. There's a song that I love In fact, I love it so much, I listened to it on my way here this morning. I won't try to sing it because I can't sing. And you may remember that from my visit a few years ago. Not that I tried to sing a few years ago. I told you I couldn't sing. And so even when they put this on me, as much as I wanted to get in on the praise and worship, I was praying this thing was not not on. But this song, (laughs) this song that speaks to the beauty of the relationship that we have with Jesus says, quite simply, in his arms, I feel protected. In his arms, I never feel disconnected. In his arms, I feel protected. There's no place I'd rather be. For you see, falling in love with Jesus is the best thing I've ever, I've ever done. To walk with God means to glorify him in every way. I don't know about you, but I draw inspiration and encouragement from people who walk with God. For the past 22 years now, through an organization called the Common Ground Project, I've been blessed to take people from all over this nation on an exploration of our shared civil rights past, visiting many of the key southern sites of what we know of as the civil rights movement. Along that way... I've had the mind-blowing experience uh, to meet many of my sheroes and heroes of this movement for freedom. I say mind-blowing because as a child in school, I learned about these people and never, as I sat in that class some 40 years ago, could I have dreamed that these giants of history who paved the way for me, who paved the way for us, would become friends, would become family, would become models for living. Yes, for me, 
they represent that great cloud of witnesses whose faith-filled journeys have become a beacon for my own. So again, as I thought about this morning, I couldn't help but think what these witnesses have to say to you and I as we seek to walk humbly with God. Next slide. Immediately, my mind was taken to an event that some refer to as the beginning of the civil rights movement. The bus protest launched in Montgomery on December 1st, 1955. We know the story of that December day uh, when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat, her rightful seat on a bus so that another passenger could sit down. For this act, she was arrested. And within days, leaders in the community, including clergy, convened and launched what would become a 381-day protest. Chosen to lead this movement was a young 26-year-old, new-to-town Baptist preacher by the name of Dr. Martin Luther King. It would be in this moment that would launch him to national prominence as leader of the civil rights movement. However, what many don't know is that his opening address on December 5th, 1955 uh, at Holt Street, he says was not only the most decisive speech of his life, but one that he feared the most. In that address, Dr. King said, quote, there comes a time when people get tired of being trampled over by the iron feet of oppression. There comes a time when people get tired of being plunged into the abyss of humiliation where they experience a bleaking, uh, bleakness of nagging despair. There comes a time when people get tired of being pushed out of the glittering sunlight of life's July and left standing amid the piercing chill of an alpine November. He went on to say, we're here this evening because we're tired now. But we're not advocating violence. We've never done that. I want it to be known throughout Montgomery and throughout this nation that we are a Christian people. We believe in the Christian religion. We believe in the teachings of Jesus. The only weapon that we have in our hands this evening is the weapon of protest. And he concluded by saying, in all our doings, in all our deliberations, Whatever we do, we must keep God in the forefront. It's recorded that in this initial meeting, when it ended, that they went out of the church singing the hymn, leaning on the everlasting arms. And for the next 381 days, these people of God walked humbly in their pursuit of justice. And by their example, they transformed not only the bus system of Montgomery, but they awakened the conscience of a nation. This is the kind of history that we need to know that needs to be taught and told. This is the kind of history that I learned as a young person. Next slide. I'm often asked of all the places that we visit on these tours, what's my favorite? And I tell people that's kind of like asking a parent who's their favorite child. You know, for my wife and I, that's easy. We've got one. Um, But I I come from a family. I've got five siblings. I'm number three. I'm a middle child. I'm the glue. I'm the standard by which the others are 
are, are evaluated, right? And you can rest assured anytime the six of us get together, a conversation is going to come up about who is mom and dad's favorite. And from the oldest to the youngest, they debate. And I sit there silent. And the reason I sit there silent is because when you know you're the favorite, you don't need to say <laughs> anything. But if, if I had to choose a place that's my favorite, that place would be Selma, Alabama. You're looking at an image now of a woman by the name of Joanne Bland, who at 11 years old was an activist in Selma. Now she leads what are called Journeys for the Soul in Selma, where she shares the story, particularly the story of the freedom struggle with people in Selma. This picture is very special to me because at the time, that young man she's talking to is my son, and at that time, he was 11 years old. You can't see it, but in his hand, he's holding a stone. Next slide. And what Joanne is talking to him about is what's written on this 12-stone memorial from the book of Joshua. When your children shall ask you in time to come, saying, what mean these 12 stones? You shall tell them how we made it over. The witness lesson that I draw from Joanne is never forget the God who brought you over who carried you and continues to carry you a mighty, a mighty long way. You know, they say that the civil rights movement is a story of courage and of sacrifice. Next slide. The late Jackie Robinson said, a life is not important except in the impact that it has on other lives. To me, some of the most powerful tales of the movement are those that remind me that the the movement was a story and a struggle of the people and by the people. You know, more often we remember the big names, the big organizations, and those big moments. But if the truth be told, what made the movement a success and what can make movements today a success is that the belief that ordinary people can do extraordinary things. A lesson I learned from another witness, Dr. Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, one of the Little Rock Nine. That's who these students are. Minnie Jean is that young lady in the center saluting and smiling. A witness lesson I've learned from Sister Minnie Jean is that even when you're afraid, walk on anyhow. It's a lesson in courage and determination under pressure thinking about what those students went through, not only as they attempted to enter that school, but once they actually got inside. Minnie Jean said, quote, it's really important that no matter what was happening, they were never going to see me cry. They weren't going to make me cry, at least not there at school. She went on to say, my smile was my resistance. And then she told me, I dare you to find a picture of me during that time where I'm not smiling. I've been looking for years. I can't find a picture where she's not smiling. Next slide. The movement is a story of people of faith, particularly of a deep and abiding faith in God. A moment ago, I talked about the witness, Joanne Bland. This is her sister, Linda Lowry. 
Linda and Joanne, as children, lost their mother. They lost their mother because of this thing called Jim Crow segregation. You see, her mother needed a procedure done. But when her mother went to the segregated hospital there in Selma, they said that they had no black or Negro blood. So they had to wait on some blood to be brought to Selma. And some blood finally arrived on a Greyhound bus, of all things. But it arrived about five minutes too late. Their mother had expired. And Linda said, I knew right then and there as a child that I wanted to make sure that I was going to do whatever I could in my ability to make sure that no other child ever lost their mother. In 1963, at 13 years of age, Linda heard Dr. Martin Luther King for the very first time speak in Selma. And Dr. King, in that message, talked about the approach to the movement being one of steady, loving confrontation. Linda said that these three words changed her life. She said that steady told her not to give up, to keep up the protest, loving told her to listen with her heart, not just with her ears. And confrontation told her to face injustice openly and strongly without backing down. She would go on to be jailed at least nine times. Two years later in 1965, at the age of 14, she would put those words into action when she would march for the right to vote. First, being beaten on that bridge the Edmund Pettus Bridge on March 7th. But later, Linda would march, in fact, be the youngest marcher to march all the way from Selma to Montgomery, celebrating her 15th birthday on the march. Next slide. When I think about faith in the movement, of course, I think of Dr. King. And oftentimes, we have this false dichotomy of Dr. King. We see him as a preacher and as a civil rights leader, as though On Sunday, he was a preacher, and the other days of the week, he was a civil rights leader. But nothing could be further from the truth. He was really a preacher living out the implications of the gospel. In fact, one of his contemporaries was asked, of all the theologians, of all the historians, of all the philosophers, of all the ethicists who influenced Martin Luther King, who would you say influenced his thinking the most? And without hesitation, That contemporary said, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Dr. King would go on from Montgomery to become the moral voice of a movement, helping to found an organization called the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, whose mission was dedicated to, quote, redeeming the soul of America. Next witness. The Reverend C.T. Vivian, part of the Nashville Freedom Movement, member of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, he would become a key figure in the sit-in movement, a key figure in the Freedom Rides of 1961, and a key figure in the voting rights campaign of Selma. I tell you about these witnesses. See, that's the professor in me. If you don't know any of them, I'm giving you homework, right? That's what I'm doing here. So Reverend Vivian, from Reverend Vivian, I learned about calling, and I learned about in moments of conflict, 
even with others who call themselves Christians, that your battle is not against flesh and blood, that I am to love my enemies and to pray for those who seek to persecute me. I remember talking to Reverend Vivian. He's gone now, but several years ago, and and I asked him, I said, Rev, do you ever feel like you missed your moment? That's an odd thing to say to somebody who accomplished so much in their life. But what I meant was, did you ever feel like, you know, like Dr. King, like Reverend Abernathy, that, that you wanted to pastor a church? And he said, young man, I was young then, he said, you've got to understand the people are called to the ministry for varying things. Some are called to be pastors. Some are called to the mission field and some are called to be evangelists. I was called to the ministry for the purpose of the movement. He said, because what you've got to remember is they, meaning the opposition, went to church too. That they were preachers too. That they were Sunday school teachers too. That they sang the songs of faith in their church too. And so what I had to help this nation determine was, was God the God of segregation and oppression and discrimination? Or is God the God of justice and freedom and liberation? Next witness, my dear, dear friend, the Reverend Robert Gretz, a Lutheran pastor, um, white pastor, who had gone to Montgomery uh, in the 1950s to pastor an all-black Lutheran congregation. I'm not going to lie, first time I heard that story, just even that part of the story, I didn't think it was true. I didn't think such things happened, not in the Deep South. But Reverend Gretz went south and was pastoring this congregation, and then again, we know the story. This woman named Rosa Parks refuses to give up her seat on the bus. Now, Gretz had had told the Lutheran church when they sent him south, he had made a promise not to start trouble. And so when Gretz heard about this arrest, they didn't know who it was, but, you know, they wanted pastors to make an announcement in their churches on Sunday about staying off the buses the next day. That day was going to be Mrs. Park's uh, hearing. And so Gretz said, well, let me call my good friend and next door neighbor. They would know something about this. And he verifies all the facts that there had been an arrest and, and yes, people were to stay off the buses and yes, please make that announcement. And towards the end of the conversation, he says, do you know who it was that was arrested? And he says there was a pause. And then the voice on the other end of the phone said, it was me, his good friend and next door neighbor, Rosa Parks. Gretz would get involved in the movement He would, in fact, drive people when they were boycotting the buses. He would become a leader of the Montgomery Improvement Association, the organization founded to run the boycott. But Gretz would always say that he was true to his word to the Lutheran church. He said, I didn't start trouble. The trouble started and I joined it. (laughs) What I learned from the witness of Reverend Gretz is that one must firm up the courage of their convictions. Gretz went on to say, our convictions are those realities which we are certain, the truths that we can always count on, the firm basis of our faith. And for me, he says, the foundation of my convictions comes through the scriptures. They're grounded in the concepts of righteousness, which means living in obedience to God's will, and justice, 
which means treating all people fairly, with respect, and with love. Next witness, the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, Mr. Civil Rights in Birmingham, Alabama. I think his biography sums up his personality the best, and that biography is titled, A Fire You Can't Put Out. Reverend Shuttlesworth was resolutely committed to justice. By his own estimate, he was arrested some 30 to 40 times. His house was bombed. His church was subject to at least three attempted bombings. From the late Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, I've learned, he says, quote, the best thing one can do is be a servant of God. It does good to stand up and serve others. Now, I said that his personality is a fire you can't put out. Reverend Shuttlesworth went on to say, confrontation's not bad. Confrontation is not bad. He said, because goodness is supposed to confront evil. In a recent op-ed in the New York Times titled, Loving Your Enemies Has Always Been a Radical Act, Tish Harrison Warren recounts one of those incidents in Reverend Shuttlesworth's life in 1957 when he sought to integrate Phillips High School in Birmingham. And not only was he and his wife, but also his children attacked. Shuttlesworth recounted in that moment that the Lord spoke to him and said, you can't die here. Get up. I have a job for you to do. In the hospital, days later, a reporter asked Shuttlesworth what he was working for in Birmingham, and he responded without hesitation, for the day when the man who beat me and my family with chains at Phillips High School can sit down together as friends. Harrison Warren goes on to say, of course, Shuttlesworth didn't have to show that violent racist who attacked him any mercy or kindness. They had shown him none. By any normal standard of justice, they didn't deserve it, which makes what he did so astounding, so morally beautiful. Truly, he represented a way of being human, Harrison Warren says, that I find staggering. He was utterly shaped by the story of Jesus and sought to love his enemies even as he clearly and repeatedly agitated to transform the social order. Next witness. The late Dr. Ernest Rip Patton, freedom rider, 1961, got involved in the movement as a college student at Tennessee State. From my dear brother, Rip, I've learned what it means to allow your faith to guide you, even in the face of death. Back in 2011, there was this television show that used to be on. This lady, maybe you've heard of her, Oprah. And she was going to have an anniversary uh, production of all of the surviving Freedom Riders, bringing them all to Chicago for a reunion and reflection. But you know, not everybody who was going to get invited would get a chance to actually sit on the, on the stage and on the couch with Oprah. And so Rip used to tell me about the time he got a phone call from a producer, I guess he said, to see if he was couch worthy. And so this producer said, I just have a series of questions for you. One question is, why did you get involved in the movement? 
And Rip said, I said to her, do you have a Bible? He said, no, I couldn't see if she had one or not. She said she did, so I'm just going to trust that she did. He said, I told her, turn to Romans 12, 1 and 2, where it says, be not conformed to this world. Rip said, I had grown up and my parents had grown up and my grandparents had grown up conformed to Jim Crow segregation as a way of life. But somebody needed to be transformed. Somebody needed to transform Nashville and transform this nation. He says, that producer said, that's a, that's a good response. I've got a, I've got a second question for you, Dr. Rep. Did you feel as a college student that you were too young to be involved? And he said, I need you to turn to Isaiah 6 and 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord say, who shall I send? Who shall go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. Rip said, you're never too young to let the Lord use you. Producer said, okay, I've got, I've got one more question, but weren't you afraid? And Rip said, that's the easiest of all the questions that you've asked me, and you don't even need to turn to the scripture for this response. But, um, and if you did turn to it, the version that I'm going to quote you might read a little different. Rip said to her, yay, though I'm on a Greyhound bus going through Tennessee, Alabama, and Mississippi, And though I'll be detained in Parchman Penitentiary, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Rip ended up sitting on that couch, y'all. My studies of the civil rights movement, I often encounter people who like to play the if I were around then game. It's a game that goes something like this. If I were around then, there's no way I would have given up my seat on a bus. There's no way I would have gone to a back door. There's no way I would have drank from a segregated water fountain. And some of my white friends like to play this if I were around then game too. And they say, there's no way I would have supported segregation. I have to pause when they start playing that game and remind them of something You know, that my historian friends call that presentism mentality, that danger of seeing and interpreting the past through present eyes. And and I tell them, you know, well, whatever you're doing now is what you would have done then. If you were committed to justice and equality and freedom, then hopefully you would have been guided by your faith and been on the front lines then. If you didn't even know that there was a struggle going on, you wouldn't have been involved. In fact, you might have been one of those outside, those naysayers who called those demonstrators outside agitators and and in fact even called them un-Christian. One final witness I want to tell you about. woman by the name of Dr. Amelia Boynton Robinson, the matriarch of the voting rights struggle uh, in, in Alabama. Long before there was a Selma to Montgomery March and an SCLC and others, Dr. Boynton Robinson and, and some others in Selma known as the Courageous Eight got together and formed an organization in the 1920s called the Dallas County Voters League seeking to secure the right to vote for African Americans. Every year in Selma in March, it's coming up in about a week, uh, there's an event there called Jubilee. It's a time where they pause and remember and reflect on how far we've come and yet how far we still need to go in the cause of justice. 
And they have all kinds of events during Jubilee, one of which uh, is a banquet where they would honor these heroes and sheroes. Though Dr. Robinson is no longer with us, she would pass in 2015 at the age of 104 years old. I had the blessed opportunity to be in her presence on a number of occasions, and I'll never forget the night that I was in Selma when they were honoring her, and you know how we do. You know, they're up there about to give her another plaque, and I'm thinking, how many plaques does a 100-year-old woman need? She's probably thinking the same thing. And But, you know, they say all that flowery language, including we stand on your shoulders. Well, they made the mistake of letting Dr. Boynton Robinson come to the front of the room and get the mic. And she was not there long, certainly not as long as I have been here. Um, and she simply, you know, politely thanked them. But then she looked everybody in the room in the eye and said, you said you stand on my shoulders. How about you get off my shoulders and do your own work? And she turned around and walked right back to her seat. I think about that call to get off her shoulders and do our own work is a call that all this cloud, these cloud of witnesses are saying to you and I today. But I know that the work can be tough. I know that the work can be hard and confusing. I know that the work can be a burden and make you want to, to quit. But through the power of the testimony of this great cloud of witnesses. I've learned that when doubt tells me that I'm all alone, uh, that faith tells me I'm surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, That, that when doubt tells me that I can't, that faith tells me I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that that when doubt tells me in those moments to, to be quiet, faith says to boldly declare the word and the name of the Lord. When doubt seeks to tell me to sit down, to hold my tongue, to go along with the crowd, to even do what's popular, faith says be not conformed to this world. When doubt says that not only are you down and out, not only are you at the bottom, but that you deserve it and that there's no way out, that there's no hope, that your best bet is to give up, faith says that no weapon formed against me shall prosper. When doubt says, give up because you're already defeated, faith says that the battle's not mine, it's the Lord's. When doubt says you can't talk to God and God can't talk to you, faith says that if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. When doubt says prayer doesn't work, So why bother? Faith says that the prayers of the righteous availeth much. Yes, yes, when doubt says, trust nobody but yourself. Faith says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. When doubt says the journey's too long, that the way is too hard, and that you're too weak. Faith says the race is not given to the swift nor the battle to the strong, but to the one that endures to the end. When doubt says that you're nobody and that your life doesn't matter, faith says you matter because you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Yes, so when doubt says no one loves you and no one cares for you, that your life doesn't matter, faith says for God so loved. Yes, yes, in these moments when doubt says if you can't see it, if you can't touch it, if you can't taste it, smell it, you can't 
believe it. Faith says we walk by faith and not by sight. When doubt, when doubt tells me there's no way, faith comes in and tells me Yahweh. When doubt says you don't know what the future holds, for once, for once it appears that doubt has beaten faith. It appears that faith agrees with doubt. But faith says, I don't know what the future holds, but I do know who holds that future. So as I leave you this morning, I want you to remember this lesson from these witnesses. We're ordinary people who can do extraordinary things when we're guided by an awesome, an awesome God. That we're called, as the late Congressman John Lewis would say, to be guided by the spirit of history, to join the struggle to make of this broken world a better world. And in the midst of the chaos and confusion of life, of increasing division and alienation, when it seems like hate and incivility will have the final say, we are called to show that there is another way, a way marked by justice, a way marked by mercy, a way marked by humility. And oh, oh, how much that is needed in such a time as this. Let us pray. God of eternal grace, you who holds us daily in the palm of your hand, be with us, we pray, as we travel this journey of life. Lead us to run with perseverance the life of faith that is there for each of us to live. Be with us each step of the way, keeping our faith secure in times of doubt and uncertainty. Lord, may we respond this day to the claim of the cross on our lives, to the call to love one another, the call to be a part of one another. Help us to be inspired by this great cloud of witnesses, the saints who went before us and whose witness surrounds us even this morning. Be with us, strengthen and keep us as we throw off the obstacles of our lives that keep us from turning toward you. In the trials and difficulties of life, help us to keep trusting in you, leaning on you. Grant us that same endurance to press toward the mark, becoming the people you've called and equipped us to be, doers of justice, lovers of mercy, walking humbly with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.